So this is Colossians chapter 1, verses 9, starting in verse 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, thank you for being here. My name is Evan Skelton. I'm the pastor here, one of the pastors. I, that was, sorry, I'm one of the elders here, one of the pastors at Bayless, main preaching and teaching pastor. Um, and uh, and uh, whatever brings you through those doors, it really is a joy to have you. But let's get to it today. We're in a series uh, on prayer. We're calling Our Eyes Are On You, coming from Second Chronicles chapter 20. And King uh, uh, Jehoshaphat, who prayed to God in the midst of overwhelming odds, odds he knew he could not defeat on his own, knowing his own inability, said, God, we don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. And so we've begun this series uh, on prayer this uh, year because our eyes really are on God. We're reminded more than ever that we have what we, he has what we need and we can't manufacture for ourselves. And he knows those needs best and alone can meet those needs best. In the last few weeks, we have been uh, looking at uh, some essentials really to a thriving prayer life. Excuse me while I um, move some of these things. Uh, some essentials to a healthy prayer life. Really a prayer life that uh, not only knows God, but experiences God. The kind of prayer life I think Christians long for. If you're not, even if you're not a Christian, the kind of relationship you, you wish you had with God. Being able to engage with authenticity, being seen as you are, to experience awe and intimacy. What does that prayer life look like? What are some of the key ingredients? What are the base, what's the basic posture? That's what we've been unpacking together, so we might experience this kind of prayer uh, together, and that that kind of prayer would characterize our church. We consider first how prayer assumes dependence, the very first week, in a day where we are taught to tell ourselves in the mirror how deserving and how powerful and how capable we are, the very act of prayer reminds us how undeserving and incapable we actually are, how insufficient we actually are. The very act of prayer reminds us who we are, and every day that we show up in the workplace or wake to keep our kids alive till sunset, or spend nursing our failing body or the failing body of a loved one, or try to muster enough motivation just to get out of bed in the morning, every day is a day in which we not only need what God can give us, we need God himself. We pray because we must. And last week we considered an unexpected way in which that dependence is demonstrated through what the Bible calls repentance. It shows up in a prayer life that not only depends upon God, but depends upon God for its greatest need, for forgiveness. A prayer life that comes to God eager to agree with what God, on what God already sees about us, about our needs, especially the ugly stuff, the stuff we keep hidden from others. Experiencing over and over 
from God the joy of what it means to be forgiven. David calls this the blessed life. The truly happy life is a forgiven life. And why repentance brings such joy and is such a fundamental necessity for the public Christian. We pray with a posture of repentance. But there's a third essential to prayer that we're going to look at this week, and I fear that we don't often consider this one, especially if you're like me, and it has to do with purpose. It has to do with purpose. Now, in 2002, author and pastor Rick Warren wrote what has now become an internationally famous book. Anybody know what it is, if you know that name? The Purpose Driven Life. If you're like, I have no idea what that is, that's okay. But The Purpose Driven Life uh, came with uh, shockwaves in, in much of, uh, not, just, uh, um, not just in an American context, but it, it just, it sold uh, now, since 2002, over 50 million copies, if you can believe it. 50 million copies, and has been translated into more than 85 languages. How many of you have ever seen this book, read this book? Now, I don't mean to burst some of your bubbles. Regardless of some of the issues that I do have with the book, um, it does beg the question, why would a book by an evangelical Christian pastor make its way onto the New York Times bestseller list for over 90 weeks, becoming an international bestseller among many who would not remotely consider themselves to be Christians? Why would a book called The Purpose Driven Life create such shockwaves throughout the world? I think it's because, actually, of a question that many of us are asking ourselves, a question we don't necessarily know the answer for, and we're hungry to know the answer for, a question which Rick Warren kicks his book off with, what on earth am I here for? What on earth am I here for? We all, in some sense, hunger for a sense of purpose, to know that our life has some meaning beyond the next Netflix show, beyond the next work project, beyond the next grandbaby. To know that our life has some sense of transcendent purpose, that it means something, has something, some purpose that reaches beyond even me. We would sense if, our, our, you know, our longing for this is, many of us, I think, have the sense, if we knew this purpose, it would direct our thoughts or actions, it would turn up the energy dial on our life, we would know why we do, not just what we do. A clear sense of purpose, it turns out, is central to the Christian life. But what's distinct about Christianity is Christianity would say that that sense of purpose isn't necessarily all that unique person to person. It's not something that you were searching for, looking to invent for yourself. The sense of purpose doesn't actually begin with me. The sense of purpose doesn't actually begin with my ambitions. It doesn't begin with my passions or my giftedness. It doesn't even begin with my happiness. As Warren puts it, purpose begins with understanding that it's not about you. Instead, our sense of purpose, according to the Bible, a kind of purpose that all of us share, which truly satisfies, begins not with me, but with God, and is bound up with God's story. And to understand our place and purpose and where we fit in God's story, we must understand 
what that story is. We need to understand who God himself is. And it turns out that that sense of purpose transforms the way that Christians will think. It'll transform the way Christians act. And it will transform the way a Christian prays. Looking at Colossians 1, 9 through 14, I want us to see how. We're going to look at Paul's prayer in two parts. We're going to look first at the main request he asks. Something he says he prays unceasingly for. He doesn't ever give up on praying for. And then we're going to see the reason why. So let's start. I want you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles. Again, keep your Bibles open. Keep your fingers on the passage. I think it'll be really, really important for us to see the actual words of the passage in front of you. Now to understand before we get to Colossians, though, what's going on here, we need to understand a little bit about the world in which this was written. It was written by a man named the Apostle Paul, who was the most significant missionary in the Christian church and the author of nearly half of the books in the New Testament, the uh, last third of your Bible. Now he wrote this book actually as a letter, a letter to a a, the, uh, a group called the Colossians, or a, a people who were, lived in Colossae. This letter to a group of Christians actually is a, a group of Christians that he has never met, if you can believe it. They made up a church in a city, again called Colossae, started by one of Paul's converts. So Paul didn't plant this church. Paul, Paul had never even met these people he's writing to, it seems. Instead, Epaphras, one of the first people to come to Christ by hearing the gospel proclaimed from Paul, uh, hears the gospel, is trained, it's transformed, converts in faith to Jesus Christ, and then goes back home to where he's from, to Colossae, begins to talk about that gospel and preach it, and what happens? More people experience what he's experienced, and a church is born. It's really an uh, incredible story, a, uh, a lived-out picture of what we see in the book of Acts, of how the gospel began to spread by the mouths of Christians sharing with those who are not Christians, Christians across the known world, and that, and that gospel then beginning to transform individuals and communities as it went. Uh, Paul, like others who first preached this gospel, were only the first spark, as significant as they were, they only the first spark for the power of the gospel to rage like wildfire. In verse 5 through 6, Paul tells us the word had already gotten out about the Colossians and it had come back to him. Even though he had not met them, these Colossian Christians, the power of the gospel, he had heard the rumors of it. He'd heard the rumors of its effects. And this is how he knew that it was, their conversion was genuine because it was having the same effects upon them as it was having upon Christians around the world. And even though Paul wasn't the uh, one to announce it first to them, he couldn't deny its effects. And he, had, he couldn't stop celebrating. He couldn't stop praising God for what was happening among them. Unfortunately, not everything was good at this point in Colossae when he's writing this. Despite the fact that it had borne such fruit, the gospel had transformed real-life people and formed a church, things had gotten so bad now that Epaphras, the one who had planted this church, had traveled back now to Paul, who was under house arrest at the time, asking for Paul's help, whatever help Paul could give to this infant church now threatened. Even as the Christian gospel had been once, you see, loved and obeyed among this church, a variation to this gospel had begun to be preached 
an alternative form that was beginning to be taught among them that threatened the gospel itself. It threatened this church so that they might lose the gospel entirely. We, we don't know entirely what was being taught, but whoever was teaching it, this alternative, seemed to question whether Jesus really could meet all of their needs, suggesting well, that while Jesus was important, he was insufficient, encouraging the Colossians to look, behind, I mean, look b- beyond the gospel for their spiritual fulfillment, saying that that was really the immature stuff. Yeah, if you wanted to stay babies, but if you wanted to be really grown up and mature, there was more to spiritual fulfillment than what Jesus had to offer. And so Paul writes this letter painting one of the most captivating pictures of Jesus we have in the New Testament. Expressing his love for a people he had not met in person and yet had been, been praying for, as he says, without ceasing. What is it he prays for, though, without ceasing, without letting up on rinse and repeat? Let's read verse 9, if you would, in Colossians chapter 1. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays that these men and women would know the will of God. In a sense that they might be filled up with the knowledge of this will. What does that mean, though, exactly? Over the years, I can't tell you how often I have spoken with other Christians, other friends, who desperately want to know God's will for their lives. And by God's will, they mean something like, what should I do next? What path should I take? What choice should I make? I don't think I'm the only one who wrestles with questions like this on a daily basis, not always sure what I should do next. And like we should, we pray about these decisions. But we treat prayer, as one of my friends put it, like a magic eight ball. Have you seen one of the, like a magic eight ball? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, this plastic ball that you ask a variety of questions to. You shake it up and a small dice floats up to the top with your answer. Uh, Should I break up with her? Yes, definitely. Will I pass the test? Uh, Don't count on it. Or should I tell them what's going on? ask again later. Or still, uh, is this the right job for me? Outlook, not so good. I mean, you have, you have this, we'd ask so many questions to, in, in prayer. We're asking, looking for God to give us a similar response. Many of us pray just hoping for some sign of what we should and shouldn't do so we could walk forward in confidence. Some of us get really mystical too. We get really, um, We get really goofy, to be honest. Some of us look for signs around us as confirmation of God's will. In the world around us, we interpret the uh, open parking space at the grocery store as God's yes to what we wanted to do. Or perhaps the gust of wind that caught me when I was outside is his no. Some of us, we uh, maybe... Maybe you've not seen this before, but we'll open our Bibles at random and just read the verse, okay, behold, their heroes cry in the streets. I'm just picking this. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. Okay, so that means uh, because the envoys are weeping bitterly, um, I should break up even if it makes her sad. Okay, here we go. Moving on. This is what we do. We, We look at the Bible to confirm our questions. We get really crazy with it by 
opening, again, uh, some of us are, here's another way, was we, uh, some of us are searching for this uh, peace in our spirit. You ever heard this, right? So, yeah, I can't really, I don't, I don't feel a peace in my spirit about this, so I can't make the decision. When it's, when you, now, again, you probably might have said this. What do we mean, though, when it comes to this? We get very mystical when it comes to God's will. Some of us put tests, or you might have heard Christians call these fleeces out before the Lord, looking for God to confirm what we're already convinced of, to be honest. You see, when it comes to God's will, many of us view it not only as a secret plan, God's secret plan for our life, but a secret plan that it's up to us to discover, and a secret plan that we could very easily mess up. We view God's will like a path that's in a darkened wood that you could accidentally wander from only to find yourself hopelessly lost. Now God, I need to tell you, certainly cares about our decisions. Not just the major ones, he cares about the minor ones. We're going to see just how much he cares about these decisions. And he certainly has a hidden will for our lives. He's not just a grand chess player reacting to us. God is a sovereign God over all the events of history. He alone determines the steps of our days. But I, I need to tell you why I think this approach to God's will, to this, uh, that it's on us to discover the secret plan of God and to stay on it in fear that we might lose it and leave it behind and so lose God in the process. Why this is so dangerous? Let me give you first. Because it is supremely self-focused. Instead of considering God's revealed plans and his purposes, this view of God's will makes God's will all about me. About discovering my unique path to happiness, as if that was the greatest goal we could pursue. And it puts entirely too much pressure on my shoulders to figure it out. Second, we all have a tendency, if you're like me, to find and give divine approval to the choices we already knew we wanted to make. It's not to say that God can't use our circumstances to lead and direct our decisions, but don't you find it interesting? You ever, maybe you have others in your life who've prayed about the decision only to walk away saying God has told them what to do and it sounds a lot like what they already wanted to do. Anybody ever uh, been told, God told me to break up with you? I mean, I just would love to stay together, baby, but God's made it clear. Wow, what a painful thing to hear. Not only you were broken up with, but that God broke up with you. It's funny how we, we can slap the label of God told me on decisions that we're insecure about so that we feel better. But here's what happens in the process is we disallow others from disagreeing with us. We disallow others from questioning that decision. After all, who wants to question or disagree with God? In fact, here's what the problem is, is we actually, in doing so, may prevent ourselves from understanding and following God's will. In saying and identifying God's will too quickly, we may disallow ourselves from actually finding it out. Third, this view of God's will comes with what you might call paralysis when it comes to decision-making. You heard the phrase paralysis by analysis? 
Sometimes we face decisions and we are so afraid of making the wrong decision that we make no decision. After all, if I'm not sure what God wants me to do, how do I know that he's not going to leave me behind? And some of us, we carry deep regrets because we made the wrong decision in years past. And God surely is standing at the end of that path with his arms folded waiting for us to figure it out. Well, you made your bed, now lie in it. Friends, this view of God, God's will, which is, we're going to find the Bible actually very much disagrees with, it leads to bitter regret or paralysis by the options in front of us, both afraid that we have or might make the wrong choice and ruin God's plans for our lives, sometimes in ways that are irredeemable. Well, it turns out I've got good news for you, that God's Word, when it speaks of seeking God's will, actually gives us more comforting counsel, and it's going to disagree with many of these things. You're going to find that it's far different than what we've assumed. You see, seeking God's will in the Bible has less to do with uncovering God's private secret plan and relying on our subjective experiences to confirm it. It has very little to do with that. Instead, praying that we might know God's will is more like praying that we might know God himself. Knowing who God is, what God has done, what God loves, what God hates, and what he has revealed about his plans and purposes in the world. And I want you to know, God is very clear about these things. God loves you so much as to make these things clear in his word. In fact, this is a great deal to do with our, the sense of purpose that I introduced today with, this sense of purpose I think we all have. J.I. Packer says in one of my favorite quotes, and I would encourage you all to read his book, Knowing God, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives to know God? What is the best thing in life to know God? What, is, what in humans gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. You and everyone you meet has this purpose stamped on their forehead. We were made to know and worship God. And so, seeking God's will is less like, should I choose Cheerios or Cocoa Puffs this morning? And it is more to do with thinking God's thoughts after him. It asks, what do you care most about here, God? What, what does your word reveal about what is true and good and beautiful, even if I'm hearing the opposite? What does it look like to live as someone who trusts you as king in this circumstance, with this decision, Knowing God's will is bound up with knowing God and knowing what will bring God the most glory, a glory that is also my joy. And when Paul prays that the Colossians might know the will of God, this is exactly what he is praying for, for a fresh and profound knowledge of God himself. After all, their world was just as full of alternative options about what is true and good and beautiful as ours is. And now they had alternative teachers who claimed to be speaking from God himself, who claimed authority, who claimed that the Christians were the immature ones. How in the world were they to navigate the maze of opinions and attractive claims without a deep 
abiding understanding of what God had revealed about himself? How would they be able not only to discern the truth, but make decisions based on that truth without knowing God's will? I appreciate how the band Beautiful Eulogy, which is one of my favorites, put it in their song, Symbols and Signs. There's this idea that an individual is somehow more spiritual if he sees these signs and symbols and takes what's normally invisible and makes it simple. But I say the mark of a mature man is the one who understands God's word and understands and allows that to govern his decisions and his perspective plans. But let me get really practical then. Okay, what do we do then with the decisions in front of us? Because many of us, we're not sure what to do, how to act. The decisions that really matter, how should we move forward if we're not to put a fleece on the grass or wait for signs in the sky? Well, let me say first, investigate what God's word actually says. Investigate what God's word says about what you should care about and what you should care about most. And allow the Bible then to change some of the questions that you might be asking. Let me give some examples. You might be wondering, you could, you know, a job in front of you, you could stand to make a lot of money. Offers a lot of opportunity, allows you to climb the ladder of success and achieve your, the dreams you had set out for your life. But what will this job then cost you? Who does it stand to benefit? Does it actually love your neighbor? What about this new responsibility you want to take on? Is it going to take on new obligations that will threaten more important ones that God has asked of you? Perhaps this new opportunity, will it prevent you or help you to live as Christ's witness, as salt and light in this world? Will it enable you to pursue his kingdom and righteousness more freely? Does this person who I'm involved with, do they help me to grow in my love for Jesus? Is this person I'm dating, are they aligned in my my desire to live a life in absolute obedience to Christ and Christ alone? Will spending money in this way keep me from being generous somewhere else? Even if the conversation I have to take on might be difficult, how would Christ speak if he were in my shoes? Do you see how knowing God, knowing what he cares about, what he delights in, what he loves, it changes the very questions we ask of our lives, how we think through decisions. Be in daily study of God's word so that when it comes to it, you are more able to see what it says about politics, what it says about prejudice, what it says about Love relationships. Number two, seek out godly counsel. Seek out godly counsel. And I have to say, be open to that godly counsel, especially if it disagrees with you. Not just those, again, don't surround yourself with the people who always agree with you. Definitely don't surround yourself with people who are impressed by you. But surround yourself with those who love you enough to push back. God has not made us to follow him in isolation. This is why he makes us a part of a church. One of the reasons we wither, one of the reasons we make such foolish decisions is because we try to do them in isolation. We have so much pressure, again, we talked about this last time, for independence, for making something of our lives on our own terms. There's such pressure on us to be able to figure it out on our own, and we don't need to. 
Christians have the freedom to be humble, to admit that they aren't sure, to admit their own insecurity. God has not made us to follow in isolation, and many people around you have faced decisions like yours and are able to bring wisdom to bear upon it. Certainly, many people's opinions are going to be need to be are going to need to be taken with a grain of salt and some people's opinions with a whole heap of salt. But if you are open with others about your uncertainty, particularly with those who have a track record of following Jesus with conviction and wisdom, you might be surprised at how God provides direction through another's question, through another's pushback, even their disagreement. Third, be willing to step forward in uncertainty. Be willing to step forward in uncertainty. To be honest, some decisions, you may not have a clear sense of what is best. And I fear some of us hold off on making a decision that we need to make because we are waiting for some sign from heaven when God has made it pretty clear in his word and counsel what needs to happen. You don't need a fleece in the grass. You don't need a change in the wind to to confirm that it is God's will. You don't need to have God tell you from heaven that you need to take some active steps in fighting pornography. You don't need God to tell you from heaven to go out of your way to serve the poor. You don't need God to tell you from heaven that the confrontation really does need to take place. There are many things we hold off because we are waiting for God to tell us yes when he's already told us yes. In fact, many decisions, though, in another sense, it's not entirely clear even after we've studied God's word and received good counsel which option we should pick. You know, Christians actually can find a sense of freedom when they face these kind of decisions. They need to approach them with wisdom. It's why, why, but there are some decisions, when put to it, you could choose either. The Bible would not lead you to a sense of fear and trepidation that if you pick the wrong one, God will leave you behind, but you can walk forward prayerfully expecting that God will not be any less committed to you on path A than he is on path B. Even, and this is important for us to hear this, even if it ends up being a foolish decision, you can rest assured knowing that God makes use of foolish decisions all the time. Now, I'm not encouraging you to make an openly foolish decision decision. After all, there may be real, very serious consequences, not just on you. You may not be the only one who is affected by them, but our sovereign God, his plans cannot be undone by our efforts, and he is committed to deliver you to himself even through your terrible choices if you belong to him. Number four, pray. That sounds like a no-duh, but We really should pray. I realize most of what I've said can almost limit us from praying, but I I don't actually want to discourage that. I want to tell you to pray more often about these decisions. But when you pray, pray that God makes the key issues in this decision apparent for you. Not that you would just seek to control your circumstances, but that you might see your circumstances in a new light. See how you might glorify God for the instance in your suffering. Pray that he surrounds you with good counselors. Pray that you might rightly understand what he has made clear in his word, that you wouldn't avoid it. Pray that you might walk forward with courage and expectation, even if it turns out to be supremely difficult. After all, Paul prays that these people would be filled, not just with the knowledge 
of God's will, but he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That means that the wisdom and understanding we need for real-life decisions doesn't just come with our spreadsheets and our pro-cons lists. These, this wisdom and understanding comes from the Spirit of God who helps you to illuminate and apply the Word of God to our hearts and situations. He may not always tell you what to decide, but he tells you how to decide. Paul prays that they might know God's will, a will that does not need so much to be found out, but followed, which leads us to our second main point, that we might obey God's will. Now, Paul could have ended with his prayer telling them that he wants, he prays all the time without ceasing for that they would know God's will. But he doesn't. He goes on and he expands this, doesn't he? In verse 10, Paul tells us why this kind of knowledge matters. That we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Now, I don't know what you uh, think about Christianity. But it turns out Christianity isn't simply a system of rules and or even belief statements. Now, certainly, Christianity is bound up with certain expectations, and it falls apart without its belief statements. But Christianity is based on a conviction, a very real and important conviction, that we have a God who is there, and he is intimately involved in our lives. In fact, the Christian life isn't a life which divides itself into the religious stuff, and the non-religious stuff. Rather, a true Christian is one who is seeking God's perspective on and power for all aspects of their life. All of their relationships, all of their experiences, all of their responsibilities, all of their losses and gains. In other words, the expectations and belief statements are bound up with knowing God and the desire to live a life which treats him as God. I realize, again, the statement, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, it's really intense. A life that is worthy of Jesus, our Lord, of God himself. But it's meant that way. See, the Christian life is not merely an intellectual exercise. It involves an invitation for God to make himself utterly and completely at home in all of my life to live up to his expectations, not anyone else's, in every relationship and decision. And it's only a matter of time before God very much disagrees with you before he, and making himself home, that wall he's breaking down is really painful. Our culture, though, applauds those who stay true to themselves. God applauds those who stay true to him. And Paul gives four signs of this. How do you know if you're walking in obedience with God's will? One, that we might bear fruit in every good work. Let's look at that phrase, that we might bear fruit in every good work. Now, when we hear something like good works, some of us hear something like moral works, as in uh, the kind of works which keep me on God's good side, adding one more ounce to a scale that I desperately hope outweighs all the bad. But notice the way that this is phrased, bearing fruit in every good work. In other words, the kind of good works that Paul is concerned with are the kind of works which flow from a life that already knows and loves God. 
It's the natural overflow. It's how it bears fruit. The life that is in that vine begins to show off in those ways. These aren't the, these works aren't the things that we use to earn God's love. We couldn't possibly earn that love at all. We can't lift a finger for it. Rather, these are the overflow of a life that has experienced his love, undeserved, apart from works. Ephesians 2, 10 puts this, uh, puts it this way after, after summarizing how it is that God's grace and God's grace alone saves us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this verse. I wish we could spend all morning in this verse, but here's what this verse implies, is that God, not only, if he chose to save you, if he chose to bring you into his family, and he did so before the foundations of the earth, then in choosing to save you, he also chose to make you useful. He has chose to, chosen to do something, make something from your life, to actually set apart good works for you to do. Isn't that good news? It means that as ordinary as your life might seem, as frustrating as it might seem, as limited as it might seem, you might not even be able to leave your house if you're watching this online. God has said to you, your life does have meaning and there are good works for you still to do. The, these good works, though, I want to say one more thing about it, is that, notice he says, every good work. You know why this is important? Again, I'm saying this first and foremost to me because there may be a kind of good works that come naturally to you. Certain good works that you might be very passionate about. And we have a tendency to rest in these good works as signs of our spiritual health, to compare ourselves to others and say, they don't take these kind of good works seriously. I clearly take these good works seriously. And we get very blind to ourselves, don't we? Remaining apathetic to the ways in which the gospel still must adjust my opinions and transform my priorities. In many ways, it's like we are working out just one part of our body. Okay, so imagine you have somebody who's just doing bicycle, I'm bicycle, wow, so see how often I work out. Uh, and it's on a bicycle, but bicep curls. He's doing, so imagine he's doing bicep curls with just one arm. There was a movie I watched of this, Lady in the Water, everybody's seen this, but anyways, one of the main characters, he, uh, he is curling just one arm. Okay, so gets massive, gets real buff, and then, but everybody, it just, everybody notices. It just looks awkward. Everybody knows that you're imbalanced. Everybody knows that you're neglecting this area. You've gotten really good at one area, but everybody sees what you're blind to. And it just looks awkward. Instead, one of the signs of a Christian who knows God and his will is that they begin to care about issues, it turns out, on both sides of our current political spectrum. Don't we need that in divided times like ours? Christians who know God and his will, who have aligned themselves with that will more than they've aligned themselves with any political party and find themselves disagreeing no matter where they stand. They apply God's will to their work, and to their family life. They grieve pornography and greed. They pray for their leaders and they defend the poor. This is something that we're reminded of too on a week in which we had MLK, to st MLK Day to start it. This is also the, uh, the um, oh, why am I forgetting? This is the, uh, right, not right to life, what's the Sunday? Say it again. This is the Sunday where, we're, where we grieve the injustice of abortion. Christians 
care about systemic prejudice just as they care about abortion. Christians love their neighbors inside the church just as they love their neighbors outside the church. The first sign of a life that knows God's will is that it bears fruit in every good work. Be that we, in a second, we might grow in the knowledge of God. We've already talked about this one at some length. We've talked about, again, knowing God. But here Paul points out that this knowledge of God is not something that we arrive at, but that's something that we grow in. In other words, the life of a Christian assumes teachability. A growing Christian demonstrates the clear awareness that there is still more that they need to understand and even more that they still need to obey. A mature Christian isn't an expert talking down to those who are around them, but humble enough to see that their knowledge is still far short of where it should be and they are still eager to learn. This means that the knowledge of God is also the means by which their lives are transformed. How is it you changed? How you change? How is it you transform? How is it you experience the power of God? By knowing God. Knowledge of God shouldn't be some cold and distant discipline. Simply filling our heads with more facts and opinions. And all of us know what this is like. Have you ever experienced a religious person who knows a lot about God, but actually knows God very little? May we not be those kind of people. Filling our heads without having our hearts transformed. No, the sign of true knowledge is that it will be transformative. Truth and power go hand in hand. It's one of the reasons why Paul cares so much that the Colossians would be able to distinguish the true gospel from the false one because a false gospel is a lifeless gospel. It leaves us as we are and that is the last thing that we need. Only a correct gospel will actually change us. We grow in our knowledge of God because it is by that knowledge that we grow. See, that we might be strengthened for endurance and patience. This third sign is really, really important. But to be honest, it's just, it's, it's a bit surprising. After all, notice, let's look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might. That right there is, is uh, exciting. It's empowering. We, we might know God's power. We might be strengthened with the same power that the creator God has, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, and not just an ounce of that power, but the full measure of that power according to God's glorious might. The question is, though, power for what exactly? Power for healing? Power to avoid suffering and loss? Power to retake our government or to keep our politicians in power? To be honest... The rest of the verse might sound a little bit disappointing to us. Paul prays for power, for all endurance and patience. In other words, the power he prays for is what Eugene Peterson calls long obedience in the same direction. So much of the current rhetoric today, even among religious people, is about winning, winning culture wars, winning an election, winning the fight for justice, equality, for truth. But Paul instead prays for endurance, doesn't he? 
You see, friends, regardless of how many religious people are acting right now, our hope isn't in this or another election. It is not in taking the next cultural hill for Christ. Our hope is in the sovereign Lord of the world who is accomplishing his purposes. And until his kingdom comes, we put one foot in front of the other. We press on in steadfast, courageous obedience. We do the next right thing after the next right thing after the next right thing. Certainly, our culture grieves and gives us much to grieve about, as well as it gives us things to celebrate. But if you are a Christian, you must be able to see the coming kingdom of God more clearly than you see any other kingdom in front of you. You want to stand out as a Christian? Obey without panic. Endure without despair. Ready yourself for suffering, even persecution, and walk forward as one who knows the will of God. You know, I've been asked very often, Pastor, are we in the end times? And I give a very dissatisfying answer, I have to just tell you. Well, in some sense, according to the Bible, the end times started after the days of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to get into discussions of Revelation this morning, but nonetheless, we need to be ready, friends, for Christ to return by the end of this sermon before then some of you are saying please lord i'm saying please lord we need to ready ourselves that christ could return tomorrow he could return at the end of this year he could return in a thousand years friends what if i I, somebody put it this way what if what if a thousand years from now people refer to the days of 2021 as the days of the early church god could do it and i realize that many of us Uh, That sounds overwhelming to us because we want God's kingdom to come now. The world feels like it's falling apart now. I have to tell you, it's not the worst that the world has ever been. And the Christians who have seen much worse times than ours, you know what they did? They saw the kingdom of God as real in their day a thousand years ago, more real than those kingdoms that were in front of them. And they marched forward in obedience. And because they did in obedience without despair, without panic, because they passed on the baton of the gospel again, you have it in your hands today. Four, that we might give thanks with joy. Now, I have to admit, that would be a discouraging place to end, wouldn't it? Persevere. Plod on, friends. In some senses, in some sense, we need to say that, though. We do need to plod on. It's still true. But notice how Paul ends, and I think I'm just so, I'm just so grateful for God's kindness in these words. Paul ends with the promise of joy. A Christian regardless of what they suffer, regardless of loneliness, regardless of failure, regardless of disappointment, even death can give thanks, he says. Not by ignoring their circumstances, mind you, but by seeing something even more certain than their circumstances. And what is that, according to Paul? The gospel. I wish we had time to unpack all that is said in verse 12 through 14. After all, this begins one of the most beautiful summaries of the glory and goodness and grace of our God and Jesus Christ. But what we must say is that what grounds our hopes and our prayers is not our circumstances or our limited understanding of them. The assurance behind our prayers, which leads us to know God and to walk in a manner worthy of him, is the news of his grace. A news he summarizes as the news that the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, what grounds your assurance in tension-filled, uncertain times? What grounds your assurance is knowing that this story is as true as it ever has been. To take comfort in what grounded the comfort of the Colossians in days where they weren't sure, sure always what to do. That God has qualified us, not us. All of us are putting together resumes, trying to earn God's favor. It it tells us to give it all up. He has qualified us, providing what sinners needed to be considered worthy for his kingdom, and they could not lift a finger to help with it. God has qualified us. Second, God has delivered us. He has done battle with our fiercest enemy, and he has won. He has broken into our prison a prison in which we were serving a life sentence or really a death sentence and rescued those who only knew darkness. Third, he has transferred us. He has changed our permanent address. The moving truck has left the kingdom of darkness behind and has arrived at a new home, his home, where we will live with Jesus forever. And last, this God has redeemed us. He has done all of these things because he perceived our greatest need, our sin, and our alienation from God himself, our enduring rebellion, and the sentence of death, and he has met our greatest need by sending his son as our savior. This is why regardless of what comes, you can have real enduring, grounding joy, because, and because of this joy, you can bear fruit in every good work, grow in the knowledge of of God. Be strengthened for endurance and patience and give thanks to the Father and do so again and again and again. If you're not a Christian, this is is that sense of purpose you were longing for is found, a kind of purpose that will sustain you for all of life. It, It does come with great cost, even the death of ourselves. But on the way to life and joy, friends, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you might be transferred from the vein of darkness into the kingdom of light, would you do so? This is the purpose you were made for. Stop wasting it in smaller things. Friends, if you're a Christian, a life that knows God's will and obeys God's will, that's what you're made for. And a life that helps others to do the same. This is our purpose, friends. And in many ways, this is what it means to make disciples, which is our mission as a church. It's what we've been left with, to make disciples of all nations. Friends, collectively, we share this task. And that comes by actively making sense of the gospel to others, being ready for every opportunity that God would give us. And that implies us, on a daily basis, being in real relationships where we're authentic and uncertain in all of our insecurities. We're not hiding. We're not posturing. We're not trying to manipulate. We're in the kind of relationships in which we can pray for one another and help others to have that long obedience in the same direction. That we might apply the will of God to all of life. God does miraculous things in a church that prioritizes that, a church that prays that way. Let me ask, what does your prayer life look like? What are you quickest to pray for? Is it a change in circumstances? Sure, bring those to the Lord. Your very real sorrows, he hears. He wants, to, he wants to rescue and provide. He's a good father. We're going to talk about that next week. 
But the things you should pray without ceasing is that you would know and obey God's will. And you would help others to do the same. Friends, who around you needs that help? That encouragement, some wind in their sails? Who perhaps needs a difficult conversation? One done with grace? There are things in your life that you need prayer for because you're not sure that you have the courage to take them on? Are there some things in which you've been praying for and you know what the next step actually is already? Friends, we, our prayer life is one of de- dependence and it's one of obedience, but in the, in the in-between, I want us to help lead us in what we talked about last week in repentance. You know, we're a church that has, is reminded that our, our days are not always guaranteed us, that we don't know what the future holds for us, that we very much need God's help. And God, in surfacing those tensions for members even of this local church, you know what he's inviting us to do? Not to panic, but to look inside, to see before God ourselves as we are, to, to evaluate our own obedience. Are we seeking God's glory? Are we using our days because they matter? Are we praying for his provision, praying that the baton of faith might be passed upon a next generation? A church that will do that will see God show off in power. Friends, let's nonetheless pray. Lord, we come to you as the God who sees us as we are, the God who helps us, who's most able to help. And we come to you not seeing ourselves accurately. Even though you've done, you've revealed your will will to us, you've not left us to guess, we don't know your will very well. We have not We don't know your word as well as we do. We should. We've not listened to other Christians around ourselves. We've tried to take too much pressure on our shoulders, tried to pretend like we we, we know better than we actually do, that we actually know how to act and decide. Lord, we, we need your help, and we just want to stop by confessing perhaps what we've not confessed in a long time. We need your help. We need to know your will. We need to have that will fill us up, the knowledge of it, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, something the Holy Spirit is eager to give. And we want that word to change us, to not be people who merely speak of you, who say one thing and do another, but that our lives would fall in submission to Christ, that they would be lived in in repentance, in obedience, in joy knowing what Christ has accomplished for us. And so we're reminded, Lord, of the things that are true, that you are a God who knows us, has redeemed us, who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he has done so by forgiving us of our sins through Christ's own death upon a Roman cross. And it's in that we confess our hope and allegiance. And we pray desperate for your help. We pray for Christ's sake, amen.